February 5th, 1979, Kansas City, Missouri. The marriage of Wanda Conkling and William Cadwallader is abusive. He beats her, she leaves him. He apologizes, they make up, he beats her, and on and on. In early 1979, they are in one of the let's make up phases. They plan a short vacation. They pack their bags and get ready to head out for the airport. Tragically, they open their front door to a murderer. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. This episode is based on a series of newspaper articles from the Kansas City Star, October 2018, called A Man on Fire. This is a very good job of investigative reporting in six parts, and they're all well worth looking at. I did some of my own digging, but much of the information is from these articles. The photos and videos that accompany the articles are very good, too. The reporters are Ian Cummings, Glenn E. Rice, and Tony Rizzo. I recognize Tony Rizzo's name. He's kind of an ace crime reporter. The link is in the show notes. I have a subscription to the Star, but I think you can read the articles online for free. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Wanda Conkling is born July 1st, 1945, to Regina and Oliver Engel. She grows up in a nice middle-class suburban area in Johnson County, Kansas. We've talked about Johnson County, a very wealthy part of the Kansas City metro area. If you are familiar with the area, Wanda went to Shawnee Mission Schools, one of the best school districts in the area. She marries and has two sons, who are 7 and 12 in 1979. However, at some point, Wanda's life takes a wrong turn. I'm not exactly sure why we could speculate, but whatever happened, Wanda's a nice woman trying to get her life back on track. She's just having a tough time. In 1979, she's 33, and her boys live with her ex-husband. She works as a masseuse at the VIP Massage Parlor. 
which is not the most high-class place, but it could be a worse place. She's not married to a very high-class guy either. William Cadwallader sometimes works honest jobs, but he's also involved in an organized shoplifting ring with connections to the Kansas City mob. We talked about the Kansas City mob in the 30s last week. Things in the 70s and 80s aren't much different. Kansas City is a wide open town. Organized crime, drugs, protection rackets, merchandise falling off the back of trucks, prostitution, often thinly disguised as massage parlors and escort services, and so forth. It's all under the control of the Civella, C-I-V-E-L-L-A family, mainly brothers Nick and Carl Civella. Quick personal story. I'm a bridge player. Back in the 80s, there were quite a few bridge tournaments in the Kansas City area. Believe it or not, one really popular tournament was held at the Leavenworth Federal Prison, the big house, and the public could register to play there. It was a very good tournament. I mentioned to a friend who was a guard that I was a little apprehensive about playing in a tournament in a prison, especially Leavenworth Federal Prison. He said, oh no, Nothing would ever happen to any of the bridge players. Nick Savella runs the bridge group, and he loves these tournaments. If an inmate ever did anything to mess that up, you wouldn't want to know what would happen to him. Yes, the Kansas City Godfather was an avid bridge player. When I was researching I found a post at KCUR, our NPR station, about local mob hangouts. One of them was at a building at 1423 Baltimore in Kansas City. The post says, in the 1950s, the building was home to the downtown Bridge Club. Bridge was not played there. Illegal gambling was. Listeners, I think that's wrong. I think they were playing bridge there. I can just see the wise guys in velour sweatsuits sitting around playing bridge. Okay, I'll get back on track. Wanda's husband, William Cadwallader, 30, is involved with organized crime on the fringes. He's very low level, but still playing in a dangerous game. Anyway, Wanda and Willie have plane tickets to California for Tuesday, February 5th, 1979. Maybe to Sacramento. One of the news stories mentions that Willie had just come back from Sacramento. California would be a nice place to go to get away from the Kansas City winter. The crime scene diagram shows their suitcases in the living room near the front door of their home. That was at 204 East 96th Street in Kansas City, Missouri, just off Bannister Road, a modest home at the end of a cul-de-sac. The house is set back off the road at the end of a long driveway. The house is still there with a gravel driveway. I'm guessing it was gravel then, too. At some point before Wanda and Willie were due to leave, It appears that they opened the front door. A murderer then used a 12-gauge shotgun to kill both of them. The diagram shows Willie's body lying a few feet back from the front door, feet toward the front, as if he might have been backing away from the killer. Wanda is lying behind him with her feet toward the back of the house with her head on his chest. Apparently the front door is either left open or isn't closed properly when the murderer leaves. 
I could not find whether they were killed the night before they were supposed to leave or the Tuesday they were supposed to leave to get on the plane. I could go either way. Um, if it's early enough in the morning, it would still be dark. I think somebody drives up, one person, maybe two, walks up to the front door, knocks on it, and Willie answers. Or he might hear the car and open up the door to look out. He is forced back into the house. Wanda comes out of the kitchen. There may be some conversation, possibly, but Wanda and William don't have a chance. Both are shot at close range with a shotgun. Unfortunately, the bodies are not found for several days, not until after neighbors and the mailman notice the front door open and the couple's great Dane missing. Listeners, I couldn't believe the reporters bring up the great Dane and then never say what happened to it. I know two people with their heads blown off and I'm worried about their dog. I decided they must have to leave early in the morning, so they've already taken the dog to stay with a friend or relative while they're on their trip. After the murders, the dog went to a good home and lived a long and happy life. The freezing February wind blowing into the house for several days would make it harder to determine time of death. Relatives reported calling on the Tuesday, February 5th, when the couple was supposed to catch the plane, and they got no answer. So the couple must have been killed on Monday night or during the day on Tuesday. I'm guessing that night, since the murderer would have the cover of darkness. The murder itself is very well executed, so the initial police theory is that it's a professional hit. It looks like one. Something to do with Willie's illegal activities. He was the target, and Wanda was just an unfortunate witness. The Kansas City Police Department detectives spend quite a lot of time and effort chasing down William Cadwallader's criminal connections, even questioning KC organized crime figures doing their time up in Leavenworth. Ultimately, KCPD will settle on an entirely different line of inquiry, a possible budding serial killer. In 1954, Robert Gross Jr., a cryptologic technician in the U.S. Navy, is stationed in Japan, along with his wife Helen and son Robert Gross III, who is two years old. A couple of years later, the little family will return home with another son, John, only a month old. They eventually settle down in Kansas City, where Robert works as a mailman and Helen works at the Social Security office. They live at 1221 East Meyer Boulevard in Kansas City, Missouri. If you know the area, that's not far from Research Medical Center, south of Rockhurst University. In the 1960s, that's a nice middle-class part of Kansas City metro area. It's also not far from Bishop Hogan High School, a prestigious Catholic school in Kansas City, where the boys attend school. It's now Hogan Prep, a respected charter school in Kansas City. If you look at his school yearbooks, the older son, Robert III, appears to be a normal American teen, good grades on the basketball and football team, six feet tall and 180 pounds, dark-haired, dark-eyed, nice looking. He doesn't seem to have any trouble getting girlfriends. One woman who knew him commented that he reminded her 
of Burt Reynolds. Maybe he reminds me of Ted Bundy. However, there are early signs of trouble. Helen Gross is a domineering mother. Later, one of Robert's girlfriends will describe, quote, an aggressive mother, meek, submissive father, unquote. Eight-year-old Robert reportedly tries to set fire to a young girl's panties. At age 13, he is caught at a neighbor's house wearing a girl's panties. At 15, Robert fixates on a neighbor and begins stalking her. He is arrested breaking into her home. However, Robert's parents intervene, asserting that this was just a minor one-time aberration. The stalking victim, a married mother of a small child, does not press charges after Robert's parents and a social worker assure her that this is not abnormal behavior and Robert will receive counseling. Spoiler alert, if he did receive treatment, it didn't work. Nevertheless, the victim moves out of the neighborhood not long after. Also, it will go unreported for many years, but a high school girlfriend of Robert's tells friends that he tried to set her closet on fire after a squabble. Nowadays, this would be red flags all over the place. Obsession with fire and female underwear and stocking. Not sure about bedwetting or animal cruelty or head injuries, although he did play football. I like to think young Robert Gross would be treated very differently today, but who knows? On Dr. Phil's website, Dr. Frank Lawless talks about what I think also is going on here with Robert. The typical sexual predator is very immature in his understanding of intimacy. It is like they really want closeness, but they lack the skills to feel satisfaction and trust. These feelings of frustration erupt into anger many times, and it is in this stage that the individual can become dangerous. Their acts are desperate. They try to find intimacy and caring for themselves, but when they can't find it in appropriate ways, they demand it. It is common to find parents of sexual predators also weak in skills of affection. Consequently, they cannot train or offer to meet these needs for their child. As far as we know, anyway, after this, Robert keeps his demons in check for a good while. I would bet he's still stalking and pilfering women's underwear, but at least he manages to stay off police radar. He goes goes off to Missouri University of Science and Technology, that's at Rolla, Missouri, to become an engineer. But he doesn't finish his degree and finally decides to work as a machinist. By the age of 22, he is back in the Kansas City area. To many single women, he looks like a good catch. He starts dating Janet Manuel, a nursing student, in 1973. But it doesn't take long for stereotypical stalking behavior to begin. It starts with controlling behavior and unreasonable jealousy. Then one night, Robert erupts in violence, forcing Janet into a car in a nightclub parking lot where he nearly suffocates her, saying, quote, Do you know how easy it would be for me to kill you? Unquote. Unfortunately, this is the 70s. When Janet calls the police, they don't even take her report. Months of 
vandalism to her car, peeping Tom incidents, and threatening phone calls must be endured by Janet. Then the stalking stops. Robert gets the right therapy and turns his life around. No, he doesn't do that. He stops stalking Janet, and there's nothing reported, but I'm sure he continued the same pattern, probably doing even worse things. I think there are more women who never reported gross and will never talk to anyone about what happened to them. But just my opinion, we don't really know much about what Robert Gross was doing until 1978 when he meets Wanda Conkling at the VIP Massage Parlor. The VIP Massage Parlor is located in an area of Kansas City known as Dog Patch. Not a very prestigious name for a neighborhood, and it's not a prestigious neighborhood. It's just like what it sounds like, rundown and seedy. If you're in the area, I think Dog Patch is between the river on the north and the area where Kaufman and Arrowhead Stadiums are. That's where the Kansas City Royals baseball team and the Kansas City Chiefs, go Chiefs, football team play. Kind of an industrial area. Wanda Conkling worked at the massage parlor as a manager and a masseuse. Robert Gross was a regular VIP customer and not a favorite customer with the women who worked there. He was aggressive and obscene with them. The massage workers said he creeped them out. And you probably have to be pretty bad to gross out, pun intended, women who work in massage parlors. Kind of like trying to shock a bartender. Even though people tried to warn Wanda, she agreed to go out with Robert when he asked her out on a date. Apparently, he could be a nice guy at first. She confided her situation to him with her abusive husband, and he was always ready to help out. She told a friend, quote, when Willie would knock my teeth out, Bob would pay to fix them, unquote. They date for a while, but Wanda fatefully decides to go back to her husband. Robert keeps trying to win her back by stalking her. That always works so well. Then on Monday night, February 5th, 1979, when a friend at a bar tells Robert that Wanda and her husband are taking off the next day for a second honeymoon, Robert reacts with fury. He whines about all the things he's done for her, and how could she do that to him? He leaves the bar, vowing to confront the couple. The police believe, and so do I, that he confronted them all right. He confronted them with a shotgun. Unlike the investigation into William Cadwallader's underworld connections, the investigation into Robert Gross yields intriguing information. Police uncover Bob's past and establish the jealousy motive quickly. They find two more disturbing incidents from just a couple of years before the murders. In 1977, Gross attacked a prostitute with a tire iron, alleging that she had tried to rob him. Charges were not pursued. No surprise there. A neighbor, Dina Kaywood, tells another interesting story. She and her husband are cordial neighbors of Bob's until one day Dina walks into her house and catches him assaulting a female friend of hers. They should call the police, although 
Judging by what's happened so far, it wouldn't do much good, but they don't. Instead, Dina's tough biker husband goes over to see Bob Gross and, quote, straighten things out, unquote. Later, while Dina and her family are on a camping trip, their house is completely destroyed by fire. Clearly an arson job. Police also look at two other deaths of massage workers in the area in 1978. These are kind of interesting. On May 14, 1978, the body of Cinda Hoyer, 20, a cute little blonde from Illinois, is found weighted down in the Missouri River near Kansas City. Cinda was working as an escort and masseuse in the Kansas City area and was believed to have been murdered in January 1978, so several months before her body was found. James M. McGuire, a pimp, will be convicted of her murder, along with the murder of three other people connected to his escort and massage business, really a front for prostitution. One of those murders involved a fire. By the way, nowadays, McGuire is on parole and lives in Kansas City, Missouri. On Tuesday, October 24th, 1978, Sherry Stark, age 40, manages the VIP House Studio, a massage parlor located in Sedalia, Missouri, about two hours from Kansas City. When a fire erupts in the building, Sherry and another employee run through the building trying to get everyone out. Unfortunately, Sherry and two customers die in the fire. Police determine that the fire was arson. No one is ever arrested for this crime. Listeners, using massage parlors as fronts for prostitution is an old racket for organized crime. There are good, honest businesses that offer legitimate just-a-massage services. However, it's naive to ignore that some massage parlors are pretty unsavory. Certainly, that was the case in the 70s and 80s. I'd like to say that's all been cleaned up, but all you have to do is Google massage parlor prostitution Kansas, and there's a big case from 2018 about just this in Topeka, Salina, and Lawrence, Kansas. In 1979, there were rumors that the other two women's deaths might be related to Wanda's murder, but police pretty quickly discount this. Tempting as it is to make a connection, I think I agree with them. Unfortunately, while police certainly uncover an ominous pattern of behavior by Robert Gross III, he lawyers up and he can't be connected conclusively to the brutal shotgun murders. The case goes cold. Cheryl Morris, 31, is an angelic-looking woman who grew up on a farm in Belton, Missouri, not far from Kansas City. She is currently attending Longview Community College in Grandview, Missouri. That's a nice suburban area to the east of Kansas City, Missouri. To support herself, Cheryl works part-time as a waitress at Patricio's Mexican Restaurant. Interestingly, Robert Gross's mother, Helen, once worked at the same restaurant. Cheryl is weirded out by Gross right from the start. When he hits on her, she rejects him immediately. And almost immediately, Bob puts sugar in her gas tank and slashes her tires. She has no doubt who's doing it. 
Bob Gross because he's been threatening her. On Wednesday night, November 4th, 1981, Cheryl calls a friend from school to tell her she's headed over to her apartment to study with her as soon as she finishes her shift at the restaurant. At 9.30 p.m., Cheryl leaves the restaurant. Her friends and loved ones will never see her alive after that. Kansas City police find her car outside her study buddy's apartment. However, the friend reports that Cheryl never showed up. The surrounding area is searched, but no clues to Cheryl's fate were ever found there. Alice Eaton, Cheryl's mother, reports Robert Gross to the police right away. Detectives at KCPD remember him well and note that the restaurant where Cheryl worked is very close to the house where the Conkling Cadwallader murders took place. This time, the police don't even try to hide their suspicions. They overtly follow Gross and search his garbage. For several years, they investigate Gross and keep an eye on him when possible. However, they are frustrated by not finding Cheryl's body or any other evidence to connect him to the crimes, other than being a creep. Over the years, they connect him to a couple of suspicious deaths by drowning. In 1983, they look into the reportedly accidental death of one of Gross's high school girlfriends, Teresa Barnes, in her own backyard swimming pool. Teresa is the old girlfriend who said Robert had set a fire in her closet. Teresa is Teresa Lancaster when she went to Bishop Hogan High School with Robert Gross. She marries Gary Barnes in 1979 and is the mother of three children. They live in the Kansas City area. On Wednesday evening, August 3, 1983, Teresa and Gary go out to dinner. When they get home, Gary goes to bed, and Teresa stays up to do paperwork, according to Gary. Then, as is her habit, according to Gary, she takes a nighttime dip in the pool. When Gary notices she's not in bed about 3 a.m., he goes outside and discovers her lifeless body floating in the pool. The death is ruled accidental. A few months later, the police receive an anonymous tip reporting that Teresa had sent a letter that Robert Gross had recently come back into her life. While the letter wasn't ever found, the police do investigate this. Listeners, to me, they may be grasping at straws a little. Gary Barnes is surprised to have the police asking questions about his wife's death. He assumed a tragic accident was the cause. Of course, my mind immediately wonders if Gary and Teresa are happily married, if there's a big insurance policy on her. How common is it for adults to accidentally drown in swimming pools? How hard is it to make a murder by drowning look accidental? And so forth, as a typical true crime fan. I confess, I went down those rabbit holes a little. Gary is 10 years older than Teresa, and this is at least his second marriage. They have only been married for years, and they have three kids, all last name Barnes, according to the obituary. If they didn't have children until after they married, those babies came very close together, which means three toddlers at home. I've got to ask whether any mother with three toddlers has the energy to go out to dinner on a Wednesday night, do some paperwork, and then go swimming. Certainly possible. In fact, my three oldest grandchildren are that close together. But I think it's more likely they lived together and had a couple of kids before they got married. The babysitter 
probably has them all sound asleep before the couple gets home. I think Gary is perfectly innocent and probably quite devastated. He's lost his wife, and now he has three children to raise alone. Obviously, the police think so too. As for drowning, the statistics are all over the place. Plus, they're mainly concerned with children's death. But when I was Googling, the very first story that came up was about two middle-aged teachers in Iowa who, just this July, were found, both of them, drowned in a friend's swimming pool one night. As far as I can tell, there's no foul play. There was also the story of Sridevi Kapoor, a gorgeous Bollywood star who drowned accidentally in a bathtub. Truly accidental adult drowning in pools and bathtubs does happen. Not a medical expert at all, so I could be way off base here, but I think essentially the victim passes out for whatever reason. Certainly could be alcohol or drugs or both. Slips into the water, blood oxygen gets low, heart beats too fast. Without quick medical attention, death occurs and it doesn't take long, just moments. So listeners, please don't drink alcohol or take a pain pill and get in water. As for murder by drowning, we know that happens. People have been convicted of that. To blame Teresa's death on Bob Gross, it's possible. Suppose he's stalking Teresa not a stretch, and they live in the same area. He sees an opportunity when she goes into the pool. But it seems like it would be hard to hold her under the water without making a lot of noise and leaving marks. So I don't know. I, I'm inclined to think this was just an accident. The other supposedly accidental drowning is more suspicious and much closer to Gross. His aunt, who, by the way, had listed her nephew as a beneficiary on her life insurance policy. Juanita Lovage, 63, is last seen alive on July 21, 1980. Two days later, She's found in her bathtub. Small amounts of blood are noticed in her bedroom, on her clothes, and on the bathroom floor. And a small knife is found under her body. This, of course, is very suspicious. However, there are no stab wounds. Plus, right before she was last seen, she complained about the summer heat and not feeling well. So ultimately, her death is attributed to heat exhaustion. More recently, when the police really start looking at Gross as a possible serial killer, Juanita's death is officially classified as a homicide. There is a definite motive here. But it's been 40 years, so... That may be a very tough one to prove. The police aren't giving up, though. They arrest Gross for indecent conduct and stalking incidents, but nothing sticks. In 1984, they even consult with a specialist about Robert Gross's psychological state. Quote, We can assume antisocial personality disorder together with compulsive traits, avoidance, borderline sadism, and marginally paranoidal thinking and behavior. Jekyll and Hyde. Nice at first, then clingy, jealous, possessive. Victim pulls away, breaks things off, 
he attacks, unquote. In other words, KCPD is right to be concerned about Bob Gross. Early in the morning on July 15, 1984, up in North Kansas City, a house explodes in flames. A man is seen running out of the house on fire. He gets in his car and drives off. Obvious conclusion, the burning man rigged an explosion that went off before he thought it would. Not long after, Robert Gross shows up at the University of Kansas Medical Center. That's a pretty good drive away from the house that blew up. Would have been lots closer to go to North Kansas City Hospital. Maybe he thought by going farther away, the police wouldn't connect him to the explosion. He is treated for some bad burns on his arms, chest, and face. He's in the hospital for days. When he won't tell the doctors what happened, they call the police. The police find his car, search it, and find some interesting stuff. Gasoline cans, two sawed-off shotguns, and a ring that is identified as belonging to Wanda Conkling. With all this, they have plenty of evidence to get gross on the explosion. But they're hoping to put a case together on the shotgun murders and possibly find out what happened to Cheryl Morris. When they go to search Bob's house in Grandview, a neighbor runs over and warns them to watch out. Bob had told him that if anybody ever broke into his house, they, quote, wouldn't live to talk about it, unquote. When they hear that, the police back off and prudently wait for the bomb squad to clear the house. Luckily, there aren't any booby traps. Unfortunately, the search doesn't turn up anything that is evidence to help with the murders. There are suspicious things, like women's stockings with eye holes cut out ugh, and handcuffs, but that's just evidence of major creepiness, which everybody already knows. Fortunately, they do find things that the prosecutor can use to put Gross in jail for a while. Evidence? He is selling cocaine and a stolen gun that belongs to a woman he was stalking. For some reason, the Clay County, Missouri prosecutor never brings Gross to trial on the explosion and never explains why. It may be that the drug and firearm offenses are federal crimes. Local prosecutors often back off and wait to see what happens when there's a federal case going on. At any rate, in 1985, Robert Gross finally begins serving a prison sentence, not for murder, but for something at least. I couldn't find for sure where he went at first. The judge recommended the federal prison at Springfield, Illinois, or Lexington, Kentucky. Because Gross was requesting psychiatric treatment, and he certainly needs psychiatric treatment, spoiler alert, if he did get therapy, it wasn't very effective. He ends up in the federal prison at Terre Haute, Indiana. Now, that is a serious place. Nowadays, Terre Haute has a whole complex of federal facilities. Timothy McVeigh, one of the Oklahoma City bombers, was executed there. On the 4th of September, 1987, a man and his son go to an abandoned house out in the countryside of Cass County, Missouri. Cass County isn't totally rural, but it's got some wide open spaces. Biggest town is Belton, Missouri, about 20,000 people. If you're on the east side of Kansas City and drive due south, you'll be in Cass County. 
The man and his son are at the old house to look for some scrap lumber. There's an old cistern at the house, and the father wants to show his son how dangerous abandoned cisterns and wells can be. So he moves the heavy covering aside, and you guessed it, there's a body in it, in about four feet of water. They call the sheriff. Sadly, the body is identified as Cheryl Morris, the stalking victim of Robert Gross, who disappeared six years earlier. She has been strangled. Her body is wrapped in newspapers from 1981, the year she disappeared. Cheryl's mother, Alice Eaton, is heartbroken and a little angry. She knows Gross is in jail, but it's not for her daughter's murder. Coincidentally, Detective Tom Cook, who took the call when Cheryl was reported missing, is now the undersheriff of Cass County. He feels the same anger and frustration. The sheriff's department works diligently on the case, trying hard to connect Gross to the murder. In 1988, they even announce a grand jury, but nothing ever comes of that, and the clock is ticking. In 1992, Robert Gross is up for parole, and he has been a model inmate. Law enforcement officials scramble to present evidence to the parole board showing how dangerous he is. Someone in the Cass County Sheriff's Office tries too hard after all the years of investigating the murder of Cheryl Morris, new documents are suddenly discovered in her case file. The records purportedly show that Gross's car was seen near the site where Cheryl's body was found. Unfortunately, it's not hard to show that the documents are faked. This really kills any chance that Cass County will ever prosecute Cheryl's murder. Of course, Detective Tom Cook falls under suspicion, and there's an inquiry, but it doesn't come to much, except the county sheriff loses his re-election bid. Listeners, I'm going to give Detective Cook a pass on this. There were plenty of other people who could have faked the documents. Honestly, I wish they'd done a better job. But no, no, no. We can't have law enforcement going around planning evidence, no matter how dangerous they think a criminal is. It is sad, though, and this casts a shadow over the whole department for several years. In 1994, Gross is released on parole. He comes back to Kansas City. In a too little, too late action, prosecutors decide to arrest him on a charge of armed criminal action related to the house explosion. But the statute of limitations on arson has passed. Good job, guys. So that doesn't go anywhere. Gross manages to stay out of trouble for quite a few years after that, until 2002, when he's arrested for, you guessed it, stalking. Over the years, unfortunately for him, stalking laws in Kansas and Missouri have been strengthened, and law enforcement takes stalking very seriously. Gross has to serve two years in prison this time. When he gets out in 2004, he moves in with his parents at their home at 8726 Bristol Avenue in Kansas City. That's a nice part of Kansas City, south of Swope Park, pretty much in the area where he's lived most of his life. On the county records, he's still listed as the owner of the house. As far as anybody knows, Robert Gross III stays clean for over 12 years. He suffers through a bout with cancer. His parents die. 
He's in his 60s now. By all accounts, he's a good neighbor. A little weird. He likes to carry a Bible around all the time. His next-door neighbor is an elderly woman, and he looks after her very solicitously. He's known to people on his street as the neighborhood watch guy. In October 2016, neighbors are surprised when police show up to search his house in connection with a murder. Before dawn on Saturday morning, August 6th, 2016, firefighters are on scene at the Oaks at Prairie View Apartments off Northwest 80th Terrace near Interstate 29 and Berry Road. That's up in the north part of Kansas City, way up there. A woman's decapitated body is found inside the burning apartment. The woman is Ying Li, age 52. Ying Li was a massage worker who reportedly advertised her services online. I couldn't find much information at all about this case or Ying Li online. There was one news story on TV about the fire, but no follow-ups that I could find. The Kansas City Star says they aren't even sure how long she had been in the area. Police contact Robert Gross about the crime right away, although they don't say how they made the connection. I would bet that over the years, he has continued to frequent massage parlors, no doubt bothering the massage workers and probably stalking them. It's scary to think how vulnerable a woman doing massages in her apartment might be. The police search Robert's house on Bristol Avenue very thoroughly. Police all over the area pool their information about him. But again, they don't charge him with anything related to the fire or the murder. It will take Robert Gross himself doing something stupid to bring about an arrest. Just as expected, Robert is frequenting massage parlors and creeping out the women who work there. He hits on them, and when he gets turned down, he starts following his old pattern. Two Olathe, Kansas massage parlors are particular targets. A-plus massage on Merlin Road and nearby Alpha Massage on South Claiborne Road. Olathe is a nice suburb to the west and south of Kansas City. Gross starts to vandalize cars in the parking lots of those businesses and stalk the massage workers. Then on October 1st, 2017, Gross's refused service at both Olathe salons. He decides to drive over to Lawrence, Kansas, home of the University of Kansas. At the Tea Spa Massage Parlor in Lawrence, Gross really loses it. Tea Spa Massage is located at a strip mall near 23rd Street and Louisiana, so in South Lawrence. Right next to a U.S. Marine Corps recruiting office. If you think about it, that's probably a good location for a massage parlor from a customer and security point of view. The manager of the Olathe Salons also works at Tea Spa Massage in Lawrence. I'm sure Gross knows that because he's been stalking her. He gropes her, calls her names, strips down, and runs around naked, demanding sex. Ugh. He even threatens to call immigration and have her arrested. She's Asian, like Ying Li. The woman runs out and gets a man to come back into the business with her. 
I bet it was a Marine from next door. Gross leaves, but not without threatening the woman. Okay, this is assault. And T-Spa Massage has security cameras. Robert Gross is charged with assault in Lawrence. KCPD is all over Gross now. A special team is formed to monitor his activities closely. They are alarmed at what they see. Robert buys handcuffs and masks and a bulletproof vest. He even goes to a gun show. Keep in mind, felons, which he is, are not allowed to have guns. Gross ignores this and meets a guy in a parking lot to buy two shotguns from him. That's enough for an arrest. Gross is arrested on federal charges for the guns and interstate stalking. In his car, they find an ominous list filled with the names, phone numbers, and addresses of Asian women. Robert Gross III is convicted of these federal charges. He can receive a sentence of up to 55 years. His stalking victims, who are still terrified of him, would love to see that. So would law enforcement. As of May 2019, a federal judge is considering the matter. Prosecutors present the judge with his unsavory 40-year history and Gross's connection to at least four murders. Whether the judge can use that information is a legal matter. So, as far as I know, Robert Gross hasn't been sentenced yet and is still incarcerated at the Leavenworth Detention Center. The Leavenworth Detention Center is a privately run correctional facility. It's run by Core Civic, formerly known as Corrections Corporation of America. LDC operates under a contract with U.S. Federal Marshals. It's not an actual prison. It's technically a holding facility for people charged with federal crimes who are waiting for trial or who've been convicted of federal crimes and either have to wait for sentencing or for a bed to open up at their permanently assigned prison. I actually worked there for a couple of years as a teacher. It's a lot different from the other prisons in Leavenworth. Most inmates are not there very long. If I remember right, the average stay is only two or three months. So Gross has probably been there for a while. They house men and women there, although not very many women. It seems like maybe 30 women. They are completely separated from the men. In fact, they only have female guards. As the warden explained to me one time, men don't get pregnant. So I can put women correctional officers over there, but women get pregnant, so there aren't going to be any men going over there. Usually, high-profile inmates are separated from everybody else, and there's a lot of procedures involved in keeping inmates separated from each other too, uh, in case one's a witness against another or they're rival gangs. Um, they're typically in pods that aren't very big and there's no mixing of people within pods. So it, it's set up 
kind of in small clusters of people who rarely come in contact with each other. I, I actually felt fairly safe working there, the way the setup was. I Gross is a, he's a high-profile inmate, I would think. He's certainly been in the newspapers and on TV a lot. So I, I would think he might be a candidate for solitary. That's, that's a long time to be in solitary. As far as the murders go, they are still up in the air. It doesn't seem like any prosecutor wants to go to trial on any of them. The assault charge at the massage parlor in Lawrence is on hold as well. Listeners, I hope they try him for that too, like they should have done on the arson charge. Then if he gets a short sentence or parole, he can be thrown into a state prison for a while. Anyway, I think I can speak for Robert's many victims and for law enforcement. Please let his sentence be a long one. Please don't let this guy out of prison again. Okay, listeners, I do have some thoughts on Robert Gross III. He's obviously a stalker and a scary one. With all we know in 2019 about stalkers and how their behavior often escalates into assault and even murder, he definitely falls into the dangerous stalker category. Is it possible that he didn't murder anybody? He didn't shoot Wanda and Willie. He didn't strangle Cheryl Morris. And he didn't cut Ying Li's head off and set fire to her apartment. Is it possible he's just a creep and not a murderer? Let's think about it. We don't have all the information that law enforcement has on the murders, but I'm guessing whatever they have, it's not enough to get any prosecutor to go to trial. For Wanda Conkling and William Cadwallader's murders, he certainly has a motive. His friend might be able to testify that he told him about the so-called second honeymoon and Gross blew up and left to go confront the couple. Gross's boss reported that he took the rest of that week off for, quote, personal reasons. So, no alibi. He did own a 12-gauge shotgun, and they found Wanda's ring in his car. I think people have been convicted on less than that, but I'm not sure rightfully so. I'd have to call reasonable doubt on that case. In Cheryl Morris's murder, it's heartbreaking that they didn't find her body sooner. Then maybe it would still be possible to get DNA. Maybe it could be possible someday to do that. If Cheryl was strangled, there could be something under her fingernails. The police were investigating Gross right after Cheryl disappeared. So I think if any physical evidence existed from his car or house or hers, they would have found it and tried him by now. If not, it's probably too late to go back and look now. So yeah, I don't see how... He could ever be convicted of Cheryl's murder either. If there were anything physical to connect Gross to Ying Li's murder, I think he would have been charged with it. So we have to assume there isn't anything. It may be that there's a witness that can put him with her as a customer maybe or stalking her. But we don't know about it if there is. I hate to say it, but 
I think this case will stay cold, too. All that said, I do think he's a serial killer. Just like it says in the article, in my inexpert opinion, as a true crime aficionado, he killed all those people. The whole pattern, all the murders and all the stalking is what convinces me. For me, there's a circumstantial case that can be made. Unfortunately, I don't think it's possible to get all the cases together in front of one jury. If only there was a way to do that, Robert Gross III would be a convicted murderer. But sadly, that's not the case. Maybe all hope isn't lost. It's possible there's somebody out there with just the right piece of information or evidence that the police need. Maybe they'll come forward sometime. Maybe they just don't realize that what they know is important. Maybe, and this is really a long shot, Robert Gross III will decide to clear his conscience. Or maybe, a terrible thought, another body will turn up that can be physically connected to Gross. I wouldn't be surprised at all to find out Robert Gross III murdered more than just the four people we know about. I couldn't find everybody on Find a Grave this time. Wanda Conkling is buried at Oaklawn Memorial Gardens in Olathe, Kansas. Her husband, William Cadwallader, is at Mount Washington Cemetery in Independence, Missouri. They didn't have any virtual flowers, so I left them some sunflowers. I posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. The podcast Gangland Wire, we mentioned them last week, did a two-parter on the Robert Gross case and a YouTube interview with one of the KC Star reporters. I put those links in the show notes, too. I'm a little afraid to listen to them because they're probably so much better than this episode I just did, but maybe I'll get my nerve up to listen to them sometime. You should definitely check them out if you're interested in this case. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review for me. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website prisoncitymurders.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.